Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's July the 1st. This is the real Andrew rather than the fake one at the beginning of the show. July the 1st, 2021. Time to uh, borrow some language from David Bowie uh, continues. And one of the things uh, we may get back to Bowie later in this show, uh, I always quote Dylan, so I think there's a need for a little bit of a change there. I don't want to always appear the same. One of the things that comes up always in this show, it seems, and, and this is unchanging and inevitable and unavoidable, is the idea that we're living at a time of great disruption. If you look at the cover, a physical or digital cover of the New York Times this morning, you have these images of these male Americans who look like the disruptors, angry, the demonstrators in our January the 6th, the insurrection or revolution or rebellion or grand disruption, whatever words you want to describe it. They're certainly disruptors. Everything around us is being disrupted. The nature of the economy is being discussed. Freedom and the economy and monopolies. We've had a, an ongoing case this week about whether or not um, uh, the judiciary can go after Facebook on antitrust charges. Meanwhile, technology continues to radically disrupt us. Sam Altman, one of the most influential figures uh, in Silicon Valley, where I'm based, now has the idea of a cryptocurrency, that's a peer-to-peer -peer digital currency, uh, that I guess will be free in exchange for scanning our eyeballs. This would seem absurd and creepy if it wasn't from someone like Altman, who's so influential and backed by people like Reid Hoffman in Silicon Valley, who by Valley standards is a liberal, then everything is is up for grabs in this age of disruption. I had uh, the, the, the philosopher Jonathan Rauch on the show recently uh, talking about saving the internet or at least saving truth uh, by rebuilding what he calls a constitution of knowledge. We live then in an age of disruption, and who better to talk about disruption uh, than a classical historian? David Potter is the author of a really interesting and important, I think, new book called Disruption, Why Things Change, but he's not writing from Silicon Valley. He's not writing from the East Coast. He's writing, I guess, in a sense, from the past. He, as I said, uh, He's made his name as a professor of classical civilization. He's uh, a very distinguished historian. Uh, David, I've been very complimentary. Convince me why I should be. What's the big deal about our age of disruption? Aren't we always living in times of disruption? As, as David Bowie explained, aren't things always changing? Well, Andrew, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Um, things may always be changing, but a disruptive change is very different uh, from a gradual or routine process of change. A disruptive change is a change from which you cannot go back again. Uh, it's a change that is so profound uh, that the directions of, of societies are changed by it. Um, and uh, what I've tried to do in my book is to sort of outline the circumstances which lead to that kind of change, um, beginning with a complete 
uh, loss of faith in the central institutions of a society, which opens the door uh, for people to come in looking to impose a very radically different set of ideas uh, to move a society uh, forward or into a different direction. Uh, David, you have a, a chapter on Marx. You have stuff on Lenin. In fact, one of the things that attracted me to the book is uh, the photograph of, of Lenin, um, I guess, uh, from St. Petersburg in 1917, uh, disrupting Russia, disrupting the 20th century. Um, but as a historian, you, your book um, is a history, but there's theory in it too, which theorist of history, Max Weber perhaps, uh, Karl Marx, who, who has influenced you most in terms of making sense conceptually of the idea of disruption? What school do you fall into? Well, I think I fall into uh, the school uh, best described by Eric Hobsbawm uh, of sort of a vulgar Marxism, vulgar Marxism uh, an idea that you have to sort of look at the way the differing intellectual and economic factors that influence a society. And I certainly uh, worked with Hobsbawm's uh, thought for a, for a long time, a great admiration for him. Yeah, I'm a, a dear friend of uh, Eric Hobsbawm's daughter, Julia, who continues to, con to carry his flame. Um, Hobsbawm, of course, is controversial because many people... Uh, consider him an apologist for Lenin, perhaps even Stalin. Um, is Lenin the model of a disruptor? Is Lenin someone we should admire in terms of seizing control of a, of a country, a society, a culture, a way of life that had clearly fallen apart? I think uh, whether you admire him or not, you can certainly say that he is the ultimate model for that kind of disruptor. When you uh, look at him, of course, he comes from totally outside the mainstream uh, of Russian society. He hadn't lived in Russia uh, for more than a decade before 1917. Um, uh, he was himself reshaping uh, Marx's thought to eliminate what he thought were unnecessary stages in the development of society. He even um, gave up chess, didn't he, David? Which was yeah. quite an achievement. He was addicted to the game of chess and realized that it was interfering with his study and practice of revolution. So here was a man very disciplined to disruption. Uh, earlier in your book, you also write about Martin Luther, I think in a quite complimentary way, Luther living at a similarly disruptive time to Lenin. Like Lenin, Luther was a man of great confidence, um, someone who was willing to take risks. Uh, at times of disruption, David, do we need a Luther? Do we need a Lenin? Absolutely. You need somebody who can uh, stand up for their set of ideas. I mean, the, the reason that Lenin was successful in 1917 is he was able to outline a very clear uh, set of ideas uh, for Russian society. Now, he didn't actually live up to this all the time, but his, his message was crystal clear as opposed to the message uh, that Kerensky was delivering uh, on the other side. And again, Martin or, or, even, or yeah, Kerensky, of course, was a liberal, even the Mensheviks. So I, yeah. I think reading your book, one of the things that strikes me about both the great Vladimir Ilyich Lenin and Martin Luther 
Well, they were both saying things that were, on the face of it, absolutely absurd. Luther was talking about a profound reformation of the Christian church, which had governed Europe for a millennium, at least. Uh, Lenin, of course, represented a tiny group of political activists who were taking over the biggest country and the most one of the most powerful states in the world. On the face of it, it, it was absurd, but they achieved it. Who are the equivalent of Lenin and Luther today? Is it QAnon? Is it Donald Trump? Um, is it um, Bernie Sanders? It's very hard to say who the equivalent would be uh, today. Um, I think there were, are plenty of people who are would like to be in a position of Luther or Lenin today, uh, whether it's a Ted Cruz uh, on the right um, or Ocasio Cortez. Well, Cruz is pathetic. I mean, he is uh, he's about as unlike Lenin or, or Luther as, as 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 you or I. I mean, he's clearly someone who who, who history has not called. Are you a theorist, as a historian, are you a theorist of the great man or perhaps great woman? Is there a calling in a Weberian sense for a leader at this point, someone who will, like Lenin and and Luther, people who with the confidence, the audacity to stand back and completely rewrite the nature of things? I think there is that, uh, because I think it is fair to say that we are seeing the signs of a great loss of uh, a sense of direction, a loss of faith uh, in institutions. I mean, Trump, I think, is a is a symptom of a society with um, serious questions about the way things are going, as to whether or not the state actually acts in the interests of the individual as part of the social contract going back with theory to Hobbes and Locke. Um, and certainly on the theory on which the Constitution of the United States was built, that this government is supposed to act in the interests of the people. And we are certainly not seeing that. We had, um, of course, some uh, examples uh, just this day uh, uh, with the Supreme Court, again, uh, supporting uh, the power of rich people to change politics uh, in their own interests. Uh, by saying that you stand back a bit, David. I don't want you to sound like just another um, coastal liberal elite. You're a classical historian. Uh, You write about Constantine, for example, in the book. Um, He was not a Lenin or a or a Luther. He he held power, and yet he changed everything also. So it doesn't necessarily require a man of the street, a Lenin or a or a or or a country priest like uh, like Luther to change everything. Change can come from above. Disruption can come from above, can't it? What does antiquity teach us about that? Absolutely. I mean, the Constantine uh, was the uh, son of a previous emperor. He had been put out of the line of succession uh, and then came back in uh, in, a, in a big way um, in 306. Um, but what he was trying to do was to redefine the way people thought about power in the Roman Empire to justify his own uh, his own position. Um, and what he did was he, f- he really picked upon the most unlikely intellectual movement you could possibly imagine uh, to use to, to forge a new ideology of empire, which shifted 
Uh, Trumpian almost. Is this Trumpian, David, falling back on something which seems to the elites like you and I to be absurd, but something that captured the imagination of the popular culture of the time? I think in Constantine's case, it was a great deal more creative uh, because what he was doing was taking a an intellectual movement, which had often existed to reject the tenets of contemporary society, uh, the idea that wealth makes right, which was a central feature uh, of the ideology of the ancient world, uh, to one where faith in God um, is something that helps define your position in society. Uh, so I think Constantine uh, was a was a very much more creative figure. He was trying to reshape the way the Roman government uh, interacted with its subjects. Uh, this was the, the greatest, perhaps, in, in Western civilization. Is it arguable that Constantine's disruption in the long term was the, the greatest disruption of all because it replaced uh, the, the focus on the external, on the public in Rome with the internal world of, 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 of Christianity. So you go from Constantine to Augustine, from the city of man to the city of God. Is that, uh, is, is that arguable, David? I certainly think it is arguable uh, because what Constantine did was he took uh, a, a serious set of ideas that were completely outside of a thousand years of intellectual history and made them central uh, to uh, discussions uh, to intellectual life in Europe for the next 2,000 years. Um, an absolutely fundamental change. Uh, and you could also, and I think quite rightly, see that uh, the rise of Christianity had a knock-on impact as part of the influence on Muhammad, uh, another one of the really radical changes of all time. Right. Uh, we. Uh, I don't have a picture of Muhammad. I, I think if I showed yeah. one, I might get into trouble. But... Um, yeah. We've had a lot of discussion, actually, on Islam and on return to classical Islam. Of course, Luther was ultimately political in his focus on reforming not just the church, but our inner sense. From Luther, who you write about a lot, we go to Rousseau. In many ways, David, is it arguable that perhaps Rousseau was the most disruptive figure of the last 500 years since since um since Luther, even more radical, even more disruptive than Marx or Lenin, in the sense that he um, that he opens up the self to be the heart of, of 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 meaning, of identity, and indeed of politics. I think that's uh, that's absolutely right because I mean the the sort of constitutional theory that. Uh, lay behind him with Hobbes and Locke. I mean, it was radical thought, uh, but it was very much still systems-based. Uh, and Rousseau moved the individual back into these systems uh, and really added a moral sense to uh, the purpose of government. The crisis today, David, is clearly one of trust, trust in elites, We've had a lot of shows about that. I've got my old friend Adrian Waldridge from The Economist on the show next week. He's written a book called The Aristocracy of Talent. Uh, Daniel Markovitz, the Yale, uh, the Yale Law School um, thinker, has been very critical of meritocracy in America. Um, 
is disrupt is this crisis of the elites the cause or effect of disruption in early 21st century America? I think that you can say that it is the cause of uh, this disruption uh, because there's a sense, uh, I think, of really excessive self-interest uh, taking, taking over. Uh, the increasing divide uh, that we see in this society between uh, people who uh, are you know, members of the coastal or academic uh, elite and everybody else, and a lack of difficulty uh, that people now have in communicating with each other, even, even wanting to communicate with each other, in trying to find a shared set of values. Uh, and a result is that uh, information or fantasy pass for anything that could be regarded as truth. Isn't fantasy, though, in its own sense, disruptive? Aren't we having, particularly through the internet, the fragmentation of traditional epistemology or ontology to return to your classical Greeks? Aren't we back in Plato's cave for good now? And that might be the very heart of our early 21st century disruption, David. Well, I hope that we're not back in Plato's cave, uh, staring at the shadows on the wall and trying to imagine what they what they I are. I mean, we're all looking at the internet. People are even watching this, David, on the internet. That's that's absolutely right. Um, and what I hope we could take away from watching this show uh, on the internet uh, is a sense of how do we evaluate what we're being told. Uh, what are the criteria that we use to determine whether something is reliable or not? Uh, well, that is... goes back to uh, Jonathan Rauch, and it also goes back to the role of the university. You're a distinguished professor. You hold a chair at the University of Michigan in classical studies. Is the university itself in crisis? And is that, again, a symptom of our disruptive age? I think that all universities are finding themselves... Uh, in a sense of crisis, because we're having a great deal of difficulty uh, communicating our value system with a broader public. Isn't um, your value system archaic, out of date, irrelevant, David? I'd Do like the kids to... who, who, who spend their time on YouTube or Instagram, are they interested in Constantine? I've certainly found that they are over time. Good. Um, that people are interested in any kind of in a discussion which lets them um, express uh, serious ideas. Um, you can certainly use, as uh, my students, I hope, have been finding over many, many years, uh, ancient texts as a way to frame conversations about issues that concern us today. Um, you know, what are social roles? How are they determined? Um, how do people uh, make their way in the world? Uh, what is uh, the world of, uh, of Roman entertainment? I mean, all of these the issues, how do you structure a society that we're looking at in antiquity are still of really profound importance uh, and interest to our students uh, anywhere today. David, as a historian of antiquity, of course, particularly of Rome, um, most of your work has been done in a in a pre-democratic system, the Athenians invented or the claim to have invented democracy is a very different kind of democracy from the one we have today. We've had lots of shows again about democracy. We had the 
NYU professor David Stasavajan, excellent book, The Decline and Rise of Democracy. Could democracy be one of the casualties of our early 21st century disruption? Or again, is it is it the fix? Do we need to reinvent our democracy, make it more direct, more electronic, more immediate, more focused on the citizen if we're to get beyond our current age of disruption? I think that it is absolutely true that we have got to make the system far more relevant to the average uh, citizen. I mean, democracy does not necessarily survive. I mean, the, perhaps the, the best example of the failure of a democratic system on a very large scale uh, was the failure of the Roman Republic in the first century uh, BC. Figures like uh, Julius Caesar are able to sort of take over the entire system uh, on their on their own because people have fundamentally lost faith uh, in the system as it is, in the notion that government actually works for them as opposed to finding a big individual who will move policies through uh, that will be in their interests. And again, uh, when we uh, look at the rise of Adolf Hitler, uh, he is somebody who? Uh, David, say, say, say that guy's name again. Uh, let me look at Adolf Hitler. Uh, All right. Was he a disruptor or was he somebody who reacted against disruption? He was absolutely a disruptor. Um, in the same class as Luther and Lenin? In, a, in very much the same class in that he came from completely outside the mainstream uh, took over a group of ideas that were that sounded familiar to people around him while he instead was intending all along to push them to the to, to the absolute extreme uh, and to tear down uh, the system that he had risen up through. Yeah, I uh, many years ago I was taught um, Soviet early Soviet history by a professor at Berkeley called. Uh, uh, Ken Jowett, he's an anthropologist or a political anthropologist, and his explanation of Lenin's success in particular was that Lenin was able to put the language of the peasantry into the language of disruption. So it needs, as you suggested, it needs to be framed in traditional language, but it needs to be profoundly disruptive. Um, of course, Luther was able to do that. Uh, Jowett explains that Lenin was able to do that. Rousseau did that in a peculiar way in the 18th century. And I guess the equivalent today are the, are, are, are the, are, are the bomb throwers of Silicon Valley, the Sam Altmans um, of the world. We have, and I'm out here, David, in Silicon Valley, for better or worse, we have the cult of disruption. We even have an event called TechCrunch Disrupt, which uh, I've even spoken at, uh, which is a very popular annual event for technologists. Uh, is it likely that the Lenin or the, the Luther or indeed the Hitler of our age will eventually come out of Silicon Valley? A Mark Andreessen, a Peter Thiel, a Mark Zuckerberg, an Elon Musk? It will be more likely to be somebody who understands how to manipulate the systems that they use um, to move themselves forward. Um, I think that the business community, by and large, likes to stay uh, set in its own ways without necessarily uh, having to uh, 
get involved in the nitty gritty of politics. I mean, we've seen a few cases um, recently of uh, people trying to move more directly into public uh, into public office from the financial uh, industry, uh, but without the kind of political background uh, that's necessary to actually build a movement uh, around themselves. So I think it is going to be somebody who's very tech savvy, uh, but not necessarily directly coming out of Silicon Valley. Well, David, you put your cards on the table earlier. You didn't say you were a Leninist, but you said you were very influenced by the great British Anglo-British, uh, Anglo-German historian, 20th century historian, uh, Pete, um, uh, Eric Hobsbawm, who, of course, was at uh, certain points of his career quite sympathetic to the Soviet revolution. He was a great supporter of organized labor. We've had a number of shows about the reorganization, the need to reorganize labor. We had Sarah Horowitz, an excellent book, Mutualism, on the show, mm-hmm. talking about the challenges of reorganizing and repowering, uh, re-empowering labor in the 21st century. I think I may have asked you this question before, but let's go back to it. Um, Can this disruption come from the left? Can it come from a rethinking of the nature of labor, the nature of organization? We can't go back to Lenin. We can't go back to Rousseau. We can't go back to Luther. Uh, But all those guys worked off historical ideas too. can the left reinvent itself to make it relevant? Uh, at the moment, it seems as if it's rather reaction, or much of the left, much of the progressive movement in America is reactive, is paranoid about Trump and white racism, but is not very forward thinking, is not really very disruptive. I think that sometimes the most radical thinker is somebody who can reestablish a central common ground. I mean, it's actually what what Constantine uh, did. Uh, and I think that by trying to... There was a moderate, with... David, but you, uh, isn't that a contradiction of what you said? There's any, any, anything, what, whatever you say about a Lenin or a Luther, they didn't establish any central ground. Uh, they didn't. Though um, well, Luther enabled people to create uh, a completely different conversation and a completely different uh, form of political society. He enabled a transition uh, in a new direction. And Luther was also careful in his own right not to be drawn to what he saw as uh, too far of a religious extreme. And Luther knew how to work with the princes of southern Germany. That's how he uh, kept himself uh, alive, quite frankly. Uh, he was very sensitive to where he positioned himself on the political, uh, on the political spectrum. Um, and so he may have had, as he did, very radical ideas about Christianity, uh, but he had a way of introducing them into the political order that was going to be acceptable to a group of South German princes. Um, I want names, David, then on the left. You've, you've positioned yourself on the left. Mm-hmm. Are there people that you've read about or heard or talked to who you think are re- rethinking progressivism for the early 21st century to ride on this big wave of disruption? Well, I would um, like to think uh, when we look at sort of the younger uh, group of people that uh, people like Lena Khan, uh, who Mm -hmm. actually understand the power of the internet. There she is, Lena Khan, the new FTC chair, who uh, Amazon is so scared of that they're saying she she should recuse herself from the Amazon antitrust investigations. 
Absolutely. She's, but she is, I think, recognizing uh, a series of very significant issues and areas which need change. I mean, it is ridiculous uh, that Amazon should be able to run through a full set of employees, as the New York Times showed, every six months, that it prevents any kind of labor organization. Uh, there needs to be a real push uh, from the top to allow really successful organization uh, of labor to restart the union movement. We, um, we had Brad Stone, the great chronicler of Jeff Bezos and Amazon. His new book, Amazon Unbound, talks about that. Amazon out of control. Bezos is, of course, out of power. I think you may be right. David, let's end with uh, perhaps on the, the absurd. Um, we haven't mentioned Joe Biden, the current American president. Um, we had Evan Osnos on the show, uh, Biden's biographer. He has a wonderful paragraph on Biden. He writes, and he wrote this a few years ago. Biden is, and this was 10 years ago, Biden is 67 years old. He has parted with youth grudgingly. His smile has been rejuvenated to such a gleam that it inspired a popular tweet during the 2012 campaign. Biden's teeth are so white, they're voting for Bromney. His hairline has been reforested. His forehead appears becalmed. And Biden generally projects the glow of a grandfather just back from the gym. I think that's the best summary of, of Biden uh, written. Um, is Biden's presidency, in your mind, as a classical historian, does it reflect the fact that we've hit a wall? Um, is he the ultimate grandfather figure, the calm before the storm, David? I would like to think not. I think that Biden, if you look at the way that he is trying to stock his administration uh, with a wide range of people of the wide range of backgrounds, um, is actually uh, doing a lot more than people would actually have expected him or anticipated that he that he does. I think it's got the most diverse administration uh, we've seen uh, in terms of uh, experience and personal background. Uh, and I think that it is uh, at this point um, belying the old image uh, of, uh, of Biden uh, as somebody uh, who's, who's out of touch with the needs of society. I think he's, he's done a remarkably good job, frankly, in building his administration. I'm not sure I agree, David. But anyway, uh, you have done the right job at the right time with your new book, Disruption, Why Things Change, with the great Vladimir Ilyich Lenin on the cover. Any book with Lenin on the cover is worth reading. And your book is definitely worth reading because it, it talks not only about our current disruptive age, but also uh, has a wonderfully uh, erudite grasp of history from Constantine onwards. Uh, David, you're talking to me from uh, your university office in these strange post-post-COVID days uh, where we're still kind of locked inside. What else should be people be reading um, in uh, early July 2021? Well, I would certainly think that everybody should, if they haven't had a chance to read uh, Juan Cole's wonderful book on Muhammad, uh, they should certainly do that. Um, it's incredibly. Is he, uh, is he a friend of yours? Yes, he is. Could you I, introduce I, me to him? Because I'd love to have him on the show. Absolutely. He's at Michigan, isn't he? He is. Do you have the book to wave at the screen, David? I'm afraid I don't have it with me because um, 
Uh, I keep my favorite books at home. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, anyway, uh, do you have a book of your own to wave at the screen? Well, here's a copy of Disruption. Yeah. Um, and let me urge anybody who's interested in uh, the earlier Roman experience uh, to look at a book called The Origin of Empire, which uh, will tell you the story of how a democracy um, can destroy itself. Well, David Potter, distinguished historian, author of Disruption, Why Things Change, Honor, Privilege, Fun. Uh, love to talk. Lenin, have to have you back on the show again to talk more about our age of disruption because it's not ending anytime soon. David Potter, keep well and congratulations on your excellent new book. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you this afternoon.